there seems to be like this really amazing thing about friends that have a slightly different temperaments or personalities that can contribute these vastly different things and one plus one equals three. And that seems to really work, especially those first three years, that thousand days where you're pressing through being broke. It's like, we're broke together. But we haven't talked a lot about on this podcast is like the challenges and problems with 50-50 partnerships. Like if you Google it on the internet, Reddit's full of posts like, hey, you should like always have a tiebreaker because it's like kind of inefficient to have two people with an equal say in a large business. And Ian and I have really butted our heads against that inefficiency over the years where it's like, hey, who's in charge here? And the answer is exactly nobody is in charge. (laughs) Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. All right, we're here. We're live. Today's podcast is an excellent conversation with the co-founder of authorityhacker.com, Mark Webster. I had such a good time hanging out with Mark in London talking about everything from hating your business, successfully going from an agency model where you're not aligned to having a multi-million dollar business and being completely aligned to 50-50 partnerships, to having a laptop and a dream and going to a foreign country and living cheap and making it happen. We're going to talk through the story of Authority Hacker on today's pod. You guys are going to love it. I loved it. It It's fantastic. By the way, how's it having dinner at 5.30? Because that's what they do in London, right? Wow. Yeah, we're going to have to. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice, actually. It's, it's really responsible, <laughs> in fact. Oh, nice, yeah. <laughs> At the top here, I just want to mention something that got a lot of traction in last week's newsletter. So if y'all don't know, I've been typing up the TMBA newsletter all this summer, and I've been having a lot of fun with it. You and your soft internet fingers. That's right. You know, for me, it's great. It's one of the things I value in our partnership here is that you're really good at writing and typing. I mean, <laughs> I, have, for, I do have a high word count. You, Thanks, you do man. have a high word count. <laughs> but uh, yeah, soft internet fingers are, uh, it's good for the biz. Thank I you. I was talking to a friend the other day. I was like, what's your WPM? And they were looking at me like, you test that? And I was like, hell yeah, heck yeah, I'd test that. <laughs> that was like part of our high school curriculum, I feel <laughs> yeah, like. <totally. laughs> anyway, so I mentioned in the newsletter what we're reading, what I'm reading, and got a lot of replies from readers last week about this particular suggestion. Not exactly the most scintillating title. It's called American Icon, Alan Mulally and the Fight to Save Ford Motor Company. It's written by a career journalist named Bryce G. Hoffman. This book was published in 2012. And let me tell you, despite what that title might set you off to think, it is a business banger. Well, I'll tell you what I thought it meant was in 1994, they tried to make the Mustang front wheel drive. <laughs> <laughs> they had to bring in Alan Malala to get bring it in Alan to yeah. pull it back out. Well, luckily in production, they didn't change the shape of the car as I understand uh-huh. it. That's why it kind of looks a little bit weird and it's like the least desirable Mustang there ever was. <laughs> I own one, but they did decide to flip the power plant around and make the rear wheels the right wheels to drive. So. Good job. Anyways, interested to hear what Alan had to do with that. (laughs) Alan had nothing to do with this particular Mustang model. I just want to tell you why I thought this was such a compelling read. Our mutual amigo, Noah Kagan, dropped it on my desk. He says, Dan, based on all the things you guys have been thinking about lately, I think you're really going to like this poorly titled American icon book. I say, okay, I'll read anything he drops on the desk. And I couldn't put it down. A couple just quick reasons. Number one is just the power of one person with clarity and vision around what they're trying to do on the planet, what you can get done in such a short amount of time. Alan Mulally is considered one of the greatest CEOs in American business history. His tenure at Ford was only a handful of years, but he really set that company up for success by coming in there and changing the culture. That's number two. One of the ways he did that was by baking in transparency, accountability, and teamwork. Stuff we learned in grade school that 
was forgotten by this company for whatever reasons forgotten by a lot of our companies. I guess there was like a really, and this doesn't seem uncommon, but like a super toxic relationship between like the board members in each other and like the rest of the company. Yeah. And, and like a lot of the Ford family is the, they own the company too. So there's all these competing warring parties and, and there's an old guard and there's a way of doing things. And this Alan Mulally guy didn't have anything to do with that. He came in from Boeing, the airplane manufacturer, and brought that playbook in. And his playbook was simple. And that's kind of the final thing that really struck me is he had a clear vision of where he wanted the company to go. He literally printed it out and put it in everyone's pocket in the Crazy. whole company. Spent a lot of time on that project, right? So he's making like, I don't know, 10 plus million dollars a year, like coming up with something that you'd see in a grade school classroom, which is like number one value, teamwork. Like that's the kind of stuff he was doing as a leader of this company. You kind of look at it, kind of gives you a permission slip to do that similar stuff because how many of us have a vision for where we're going to be in three years? And then how many of us have a specific plan? And that's what the whole book boils down to, which is this guy, Alan Mulally, okay, come up with your vision. But then I want to see the specific plan that deals with reality about how you're going to get there. And then show it to me on everyone's desk. He had this famous system, this famous meeting every week. It would happen at 7 a.m. There'd be 14 executives around a table all sharing, here's what's going well, here's what's not going well, here's what I need help on. And then they would have an audience. It would be people from the factory floor, middle managers. It would be a representative from a supplier watching these 14 Ford executives demonstrate accountability, transparency, and teamwork in front of an audience. It's just kind of a cool, remarkable story. A lot of the same stuff we talk about in our smaller scale at this big national scale. It's a really impressive book and inspiring as well. I hear that and a couple of things pop out. Like, I don't know how many employees are at Ford, thousands on thousands. And then like to get everybody moving in the same direction, it's just remarkable. So when I hear about like laying out a plan, sticking to it, communicating it clearly. Like I think most of the people listening to this show have like less than a hundred employees. And we like moan about getting everybody moving in the same direction and like what's everybody working on. It's like, why don't I have transparency? A hundred people. <laughs> <laughs> and meanwhile, Ford has thousands. So it's quite thousands. remarkable. I mean, they must yeah. How many employees? Okay. Let's take a guess. I just Googled it. How many... As of 2023, how many employees do you think Ford Motor Company has globally? Half a million? 186,000. All right. I guess they're working for the sub suppliers. Well, so. if they didn't come out with that <laughs> Mustang, <laughs> they would have a half a million at this point. <laughs> All right. American Icon. Check it out. It's such a cool book. Maybe we'll dig a little bit deeper into the, the themes of that in the coming weeks. But I just wanted to flag that up because... It's just cool to see a bunch of people reply to the newsletter and be like, we love to hear what you guys are reading. It's always been kind of a theme. It's always been sort of a bookish audience. And yeah, well, I'm in summer reading season. So here we go. I'm just uh, get my soft internet fingers back into business here. All right. So let's get moving on to the conversation today with Mark Webster from authorityhacker.com. My name is Mark Webster. I'm the co-founder of Authority Hacker, and we teach website owners how to do online marketing. Authority Hacker is a fully remote business. We have, I think, 11, soon to be 12 full-time employees, plus another 12 to 15 freelancers. We've got almost 13,000 customers now, uh, and we sell two main products. We have a beginner's course, which is designed for people who don't have a website. They want to make money online and we teach them how to build like a high quality authority site and make job replacement income from that. And then we have our Authority Hacker Pro course, which is more for like very established online marketers who have websites that have a lot of traffic. We teach them how to grow that further and kind of take things to the next level. Can you give us a sense for how large Authority Hacker is in terms of like some kind of dollar figure or just give us a sense? You said a lot of customers. Yeah, I honestly don't know off the top of my head the exact numbers, but it's like several million dollars a year in uh, course revenue. A lot of people that I speak with, they seem to have a hard time 
getting a course business off the ground, like they have an expertise, they have an agency. I'm curious as to why you think that can often be a hard jump for founders to make. I think it's difficult with a course business to get it off the ground if you are spending a lot of time building the course for very little reward in the beginning, right? It's a really difficult challenge to create a really good course. And so what happens is, especially if you've never built a course before, people just like dump a bunch of their information into text or video or whatever format it is, and then try and sell it. And then either they've spent all this time making the course and they haven't got an audience to sell it to, and they think they'll just magically sort of fall out of thin air, or they end up building the wrong course for their existing audience that they don't want. So it can be a little bit disheartening when you've invested all that time and energy in in making the product and you either don't know who to sell it to or it's not right fit for your current audience if, if you have one. What percentage of the challenge is actually the audience versus the course? Oh, that is a really good question. Probably more than half the challenge is building the audience because if you have the right audience, there are a certain percentage of those that will buy anything you produce. And I'm not saying you should just produce stuff to sell to those people. We don't do that at all. But that is the reality. Whereas the other side, if you produce an amazing course, but you don't have an audience, like it's quite hard to get that like traction, to get that initial group of people to try it out. And you know, it takes years and years to build that up. Really, a lot of people I've spoken to have this magical idea that, oh, I'm just going to do Facebook ads and grow my course business. But I've very, very rarely seen a, a beginner or someone new to the course industry be able to pull that off. It's interesting. Almost like the top level trend, you know, like from Seth Godin to where we sit today, I'm almost thinking that the challenge of entrepreneurship when I was growing up was primarily one of product. That's the way people thought of entrepreneurship in the culture. It was like, come up with an invention or innovate on a product because distribution was the expensive thing. And you weren't ever going to replicate that. So you might as well come up with some invention that you can distribute via an established path. And now you have the internet come along and it feels like, I guess like what I've been croaking on about for the last five years here is like, I can go make any course. The problem is the the demand side. I need to generate the demand and then the production of the course feels like an easier challenge to solve. A hundred percent. It's much easier to solve when when you have that existing audience and you've built that relationship with them. You're not really selling. It's not like a hard sell. It's just like, hey, by the way, we have this thing. A small percentage you might be interested if you can. Here's how to go buy it. And I think for us, Gail and I were not natural salespeople. Gail's my business partner of 13 years. And uh, before this, we actually used to run an agency together, a digital marketing agency from 2010 to end of 2014. And the part of that we sucked at the most was selling. Similar sort of thing. You're selling people this idea that you can do this thing with search engines and content and SEO and improve your site, but we'll do it for you. Or in the current business, we'll teach you how to do it. So it's a similar thing we're selling, but we're not natural salespeople, like the schmoozing and the networking and that side of things. <laughs> it's just like, it's not us. Whereas I find part of the reason we love our current business so much more is because we don't have to be those people who we're, we're not naturally. We can just do cool stuff online, make interesting content, and that inbound marketing will kind of work for us. Yet, we were schmoozing recently at an event, which is why we're talking now. I'm curious, some of the audience doesn't yet click buy on the plane ticket to go to events. What is it that motivates you to go out to events nowadays if it's not sales? Oh, so it's events have never been about sales for us. There's, there is a, an, an element of like knowledge. So certainly some like SEO events, there are some really good ones out there. Chiang Mai SEO is probably my favorite. There's some maybe like the talks aren't quite so good, but the networking you know, people after they've had a few beers in the evening might share a few more secrets here and there. But for me now, it's like since I've moved back to the UK, my network here in Edinburgh of online marketers and people doing what we do is much smaller. So I almost feel like I'm kind of missing like my friends in a way, my internet friends. Uh, <laughs> and I'm when I go to these events, it's like, yeah, these, I remember saying to my wife when I came back from uh, DCBKK, like, yeah, these are my people. Like they, they get me. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's not just about talking about what SEO or online marketing or business. It's how entrepreneurs think about daily problems in their life, such as which clothes to buy or which flight to go on and, and these kind of things. Just really interesting way people solve problems. And I don't know, it, it does something for me being around those people, like rejuvenates me, energizes me. This might be an impossible question, but you mentioned the secrets after a few beers. Is there like an example of an outline of what that information might look like that you could share or a secret that you've heard at a conference that might not be shared on a podcast like this? It's not like, oh, there's this amazing new thing that no one's ever heard about. It's more, I think, just people open up a little bit more about specifics of how they execute on processes. So someone might be talking about the way they do digital PR and they go on a podcast or they give a talk and they give this quite high level generic thing, which makes you interested and might give away a few hints or tips. But I'm like, all right, well, how do I actually like, let's pull this prospecting apart. Like which sites are you going to? You know, are you talking to these types of journalists? Are you filtering out based on certain criteria or whatever? And you can have those conversations. I think people open up a lot more certainly when you're face-to-face and certainly in a kind of relaxed uh, event, usually in the evening or in in small group dinners and and stuff around conferences. So that's been amazing. I also think there's this thing around money or results that certainly here in the UK, people aren't as keen to share numbers and things like that so much publicly. Whereas when you're in a small group, these things can come out directly or indirectly. And, and you, it just helps to give more context to what people are doing. That context, I, I almost want to come up with a metaphor for that because something that's animating for me is like, okay, I bought Authority Hackers course and I like walked through the modules, but here's the application of it on this domain, which I'm obviously not going to share because you're going to copy my domain, but I'll share it with you because you're not. And the application of the theory in an instance, to me animates me. I'm like, oh, I've seen how you've implemented, like whether it's an investing theory or whether it's traction entrepreneur operating system or whether it's authority hackers course, it's like seeing it in a specific instance for me animates me. That I'm like, I got this. I can do this. I think it's because with a lot of this stuff, be that, you know, traction is a great example or even the stuff we teach in our courses. When people are going through this information, they're not 100% convinced that this is going to work for them in their situation. They might think, yeah, okay, this is generally a good idea. It's probably something I should do, but should I do it now? And will it definitely work for me? And you just really need to reinforce that through examples and examples and examples. And I think something we try and do in our course is, is make it actionable. So like show us doing the things we teach, but that's just us saying it. And you're still not going to be 100% sure that it worked for you. One of the things that as I was going through Authority Hackers history is you guys sort of are leaders in a corner of the internet. There's this category of like, I want to make freedom money online. And when you decide that you want to do that, there's like a bunch of different paths you can take. You can become an influencer on Instagram. You can become a podcaster. You can build a productized service. And I'm curious if you could define what that corner of the internet is. Like, how do your people self-identify? And then I kind of want to move on to how do they succeed? What does success look like in that direction? So for us, we, we work in search engine optimization, SEO. But it's more in the sense of like content marketing. And it's more in the corner of small to medium blogs, website owners, affiliate sites, ad sites, and we kind of popularize this term authority site. What is an authority site? Well, in 2013, 2014, when we were just getting started, there were a lot of these really like thin micro niche sites with really shit content on there. And we didn't want to be just like spamming out hundreds of crappy domains that were going to get hit or penalized. So we were like, oh, well, how can we create really high quality, like big, authority sites that are well regarded in the industry. We, you know, we're building a long-term brand here that we can pivot and do other business models with, make courses, sell physical products, do all this stuff. But just really the core of it is how can we start to create this amazing, what well, in the future can be an amazing website. But at the same time, 
thinking like, what is the end goal? So what can we do in five to 10 years with this stuff? But also, how can we help the person starting this get to that four or 5k a month job replacement income level quickly so they can then, you know, first of all, believe that this stuff is actually going to work and then dedicate themselves full time and start reinvesting in the business and, and all that. So that's kind of like one way of categorizing it. There's also like another layer to it as well, which kind of crosses over that. In SEO, there's the kind of gray hat, black hat crowd who... Can you describe what gray hat and black hat means? Yeah, this is... You ask 50 people, you get 50 different answers on this. But I think at a high level, it's like, here is what Google kind of wants you to do. And that's like white hat. Here's what Google definitely doesn't want you to do, like hacking and all that kind of stuff, injecting links. That's black hat. And then this big gray area in the middle that you can kind of lump a lot of stuff in there depending on who you ask. Uh, but back in the day, this used to be, you know, article spinning and software, which would produce links. PBNs, private blog networks are often categorized under there. Some people would even classify paying for guest posts and, and that kind of stuff as this. Uh, it's definitely something Google says they don't want. But you have these kind of different layers and different approaches in, in general. We saw it a lot with AI when that came out. You know, we have some people in the industry who are like, let's spam loads of AI content and rank until the site tanks, but make a lot of money in the short term. And, you know, there are plenty of people being successful with that. Our approach is more like, how can we use this to kind of augment what we're doing, make something high quality, but still thinking long term and building like a long term brand around it. And I think the people who have that kind of long-term mentality are also less attuned to the, these sales pages with pictures of sports cars and the really like kind of cheesy side of things, which again, is just not our personality. So we've kind of crafted this space that bridges those two kind of areas. And a lot of people seem to resonate with it. So seem to seem to work. One former guest that seems to triangulate a lot of the values of your brand would be like Simon Trule, Pangolia.com. It feels like there's like part webmaster, like old school webmaster, someone who has a portfolio of sites, part, part understanding of the affiliate space. So how we can monetize these properties in the early days. And like you said, of course, they can be flipped or sold on into, or you can create a different business model, like you can build your own product. And then there's sort of this part SEO and content marketing, which is like, you really need to understand the engines, what they want. Is that a fair characterization of this way to make money on the internet? 100%, yeah. And it's really underpinning all that is just this drive to understand how the system works and execute very well on it. Simon specifically, he told me the story once where the thing that stopped him getting into to all this was he was assuming that you know you had to have perfect execution and your content had to be amazing, only the best links, all this kind of stuff. But then when he got to speak to, I think when he was living in Chiang Mai, he got to speak to a lot of people around there. He was saying that um, it can be a bit sort of quick and dirty and you don't, everything doesn't have to be perfect. You, you can actually do a bit of 80-20 on some of this, at least in the beginning, and, and it's still going to work. So um, there's that to consider as well. What do you see as... You know, when you have a student come in and you're like, oh, the student's going to make it. What are some of the factors that correlate with success? So there's definitely like a mindset thing. You have a certain amount of people who think that everything we say is gospel and it's the only way to do things. And that's not true. You know, we, we get things wrong. We adapt, we change things. But the people who are successful tend to be quite resilient. So they're not giving up so easily, especially in the beginning when you know, you're know you not doing all this work and not seeing so much happen in the first six months or so. But they're kind of like taking what we, we teach, implementing, following the system, but then building on that, generating new ideas or combining elements of different things together without falling victim to you know shiny object syndrome in the, in the early days. So it's kind of like it's being able to walk a defined path while knowing when and how to branch off. The people who are most successful are the people who have a bit a bit of a like a grindy mentality. People who have been playing like online poker or certain online video games, naturally they're just like you can tell this person is going to do really, really well because it, it takes a lot of that 
repetition and trial and error and just grit to to get through in the the first year or so. So I understand like you're describing this grindy mindset where you come in and you're like, look, I'm going to take best practices for SEO and I'm just going to bang out like Simon, like super high quality articles for my niche cat furniture and I'm going to win that way. But a lot of the ways I see people winning is by taking advantage of a new channel or a new technique that's not widely distributed yet. And I'm curious if there's anything like that happening in your community right now that hasn't yet made it into your information. Like a few years ago, it was like TikTok. Like, oh my gosh, did you see so-and-so made this much money um, selling direct-to-consumer on TikTok? But there was no course that you could buy about how to do that yet because she was busy making the money. Is there anything like that right now? We don't think of it in like such broad terms, but certainly like within SEO, absolutely. I mean, this stuff changes all the time. Uh, and there's always new trends and new developments and, and things like that. One thing that we're working on a lot at the moment uh, around link building is linkable asset stuff. So around doing surveys and statistics pages and these kind of hubs of information where we do unique research and they get a lot of links over time. Now, it took maybe a year to figure all that stuff out and really get the ball rolling and and really like fully understand the process. Now that we've done that, we actually are releasing uh, an update to the course with this stuff in it. But there, there's definitely like a period of time when we're trying things out and testing things and seeing what works before it, it kind of disseminates down. But we try as much as possible to talk about that on our podcast and keep things updated that way. But Unfortunately, just the reality of a, an SEO course is as soon as you finish filming it, it's out of date. You know, sometimes I wish we were in the, we taught classical piano or something. We just make it once and it'd be good for a long time. But that's just the reality of it. I think most consumers understand that. We certainly get people complaining that they can't find stuff on the user interface. So we spend a lot of effort, you know, updating lesson notes and things like that. It's just, it's a real pain in the ass to film a, a video again when, you know, just something small has changed. So, yeah. So I'm curious, I almost thought of like this idea of like an R&D budget or like you and Gail are a bit of like gonzo creators and that you guys are doing the same thing your audience is doing. How do you determine that breakdown between how much you invest in an experimental project or site versus the amount that you invest in authorityhacker.com? I mean, I wish I could say there was like a specific formula we had for this, but I think this is a good way to explain the difference between what Gail and I do. I often describe him as a kind of mad scientist. So he has his little SEO laboratory and the company would be great if he just spends most of his time, you know, figuring stuff out and coming out with cool ideas and then filming videos about them. So we generally just give him as much space to, to do what he wants with that. So if he needs to test the latest EEAT techniques um, or build a few scripts for how to implement that, something he's working on at the moment, then you just got to let him go and go and do that and he'll eventually come good with something. So we don't really have a fixed budget or something like that. It's just we, we invest a lot in trying those things. And to be honest, about 40-50% of things won't work out and it ends up being a complete flop or waste of money. But it's worth it for the, the things that do come through from there. That's a great segue. I wanted to speak about Authority Hacker through the lens of the partnership at the core of it. And you described this kind of magical thing where you've got this executor operator and you've got the mad scientist and you're able to find this chemistry. Is that the way you thought of it when you met? So it was May 2010 at a bar in Singapore. We met randomly there and it turns out we were both on our way to Kuala Lumpur. Gail was taking his first job after college as a working in an SEO company. I had just finished doing a working holiday visa thing in Australia as a farmer. And then I was on my way there to just hang out for a bit in KL, so somewhere a bit cheaper. And yeah, we just sort of connected there, stayed in touch. And when we, we both got to KL, sort of started hanging out a lot and became friends. And then honestly, we just got drunk one night um, and we're like, oh, we should start a business together, you know, doing this. You can do the SEO, I'll do the, the websites, that kind of thing. And then the next night, I was like, all right, so, you know, we're doing this then? And we spent like six hours making out a plan and building the initial website and choosing the domain name and deciding what we're going to offer and, and all that stuff. And 
that was really the start of, of everything. Don't get me wrong, we had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. And I think both of us thought maybe there's maybe like a 10% chance this actually sticks. We'll see what happens. Uh, and certainly there is no thought or care put into, you know, what's your role, what's mine, what are our values? There was no discussion whatsoever. Like we very much sort of fell into it. And uh, we had to adapt as we went and kind of went through this whole process of discovery. Do you think that there's a, like that that makes some kind of sense in retrospect? that you were friends first? I do. And, uh, you know, we were only friends for a couple of months before we got, we got into this. So it's not like we were really close friends. So we didn't have years of, of kind of friendship to back it up. But certainly we were both not super broke, but like we didn't have much money to our name, kind of like trying to make things work, trying to travel a bit. And going through this, starting from almost nothing at the same time and going through that journey together, certainly brings two people together in a way that it doesn't if you're starting you know at different stages in your life or you know you have families at that point and they're different sort of priorities like we're a hundred percent all in on the business that was like the number one priority in all of our in both our lives for certainly the first you know five maybe ten years you guys started off by helping other people build their web presences how did it go so initially we just got like friends, friends of friends, that kind of thing said, so like, we're, we're doing this. Does anyone know anyone that's, that, that needs some SEO? And we got sort of five or six clients that way. And then it very quickly got to the point where it's like, well, let's actually quit what we're doing. I was doing some freelance stuff. Gail had his, his job. We both quit and we moved to Budapest because it was cheap and made a go of it, of it there. So we didn't really have too much of a plan for like how we wanted to grow or the direction we wanted to go. We were just let's see what happens here. Let's just put all our energy into this and see what happens. And fortunately, it kept sort of taking along and it, it grew quite quickly, certainly in the early days. How cheap was Budapest? And when was a moment when you were like, oh, this is what we're going to do. This is going to be our thing. Budapest was insanely cheap in 2010. I can remember I would go out and I could get 10 beers and a packet of cigarettes for less than $20 at the time. Now, I don't smoke or drink anymore, <laughs> but as a 24, 25-year-old, that was, um, it was, seemed like a good deal to me. So I was like, yeah, pretty sold us. And the internet was cheap there as well. I remember we did this comparison of like Eastern European cities and like internet price, the price of drinks and, you know, price of apartments. And, and then we sort of settled on Budapest. And that was really our, our main criteria at the time. The point in which we, it became, I guess, real was maybe about nine months in when it got to the stage where we couldn't really handle all the work ourselves and with the odd freelancer helping us. We we're like, we're going to have to open an office and hire people full time and like become a company. And then, yeah, it's just got very real after that. I recently was looking back onto, there's this wonderful website, thank God it's still on the internet, it's called Spartan Traveler. And I was Googling... Oh, Clayton's one. Yeah, I was reading Clayton's blog about how he was like living in Budapest and it was cheap and he was going to the gym and he's building this amazing business. I'm wondering, at the time when you moved there, did you feel isolated? Or was there this kind of mini San Francisco thing happening? Because you guys both had this incredible success. How did the social dynamic come with like moving to such a random spot? I actually moved to Budapest, I think three months before Gail did. And so I was there completely on my own. And I, I think I like made some friends through like couch surfing. And I can't even remember how, just like randomly meeting people in bars and, and things like that. I'm not naturally like very good at networking or meeting people. And, but when you're on your own in that situation, it kind of like forces you to go out and, and find things. And then it was like Gail moved out here in January and like a week later, we were just chatting in this bar and we, we met these two Danish entrepreneurs and they were like thinking about opening an office and they were maybe a little bit further along than, than we are, but we kind of became friends instantly and you know started hanging out and just started kind of doing a bit of work stuff together and kind of built off there. And then like they knew this Hungarian guy that was starting this company. And it was just just slowly over over the the weeks and months from there, we just met more and more people. And then yeah, just kind of grew into this whole thing. It's definitely it's not on the same level that 
you know, some of these places like Chiang Mai or Barcelona is, um, it seems like these days, there was a very small group of people. And often the kind of like DCers would come in the summer, but then in the winter when no one wants to be in Budapest, it was, it was a lot quieter. So it was a good place, but it wasn't the best place, I would say, to, to be for that stuff. Hey, if you like the show, just want to remind you, we have a website, tropicalmba.com. You can click through on your phone, check us out on the web, hit that subscribe button. I write the newsletter every week. There's a lot going on behind the scenes of the pod. And that's the best way to find out about upcoming events, both virtual, in-person, and much more. Check us out at tropicalmba.com and give us some feedback on this brand spanking new website. Because it's time for a spanking. Can you talk to me about the key moments in the transition from running that agency to building your own brand? I think it's fair to say that after maybe a year and a half, we we hated the agency. We hated the company um, because <laughs> we just didn't enjoy working for clients in that way. So there's a couple things to that. I think Gail and I are both very, we like to do things our way and not be told what to do by anyone. and for us, we're a bit younger than dealing with the intricacies of intercompany politics and decision-making processes, especially in you know medium to large size companies that we're working for was, was very frustrating for us. Remember two cases. So one, we had company that we did some CRO for, conversion rate optimization, and we proved that a landing page would get this company twice as many leads as the original one. And the internal team, like, okay, great. You know, and then we, we showed this to the, the owner of the company. He was like, well, it doesn't, I don't think it looks as good. It's not quite what we're going for. I'm like, so do you want it to like look how you want or do you want to make twice as much money? And he's like, I want to make, I want it how I want. I was like, that, that was just incredibly frustrating to us. It didn't make sense. And then there's another case where we were working with a wedding DJ company in the UK and they had sort of six mobile DJs that would go around. And we did a really good job for them. And they were booked up for the next six months. So they fired us. <laughs> we're like, well, we don't need SEO anymore. And that was really the, the point where we started thinking, okay, right, this is the incentives of running an agency here are seem to be to just do just a good enough a job, not do a great job. We didn't have any kind of equity share or profit share things, which I know some people do. It was just a, a flat fee. But that coupled with our, our hatred of having to do sales calls and these kind of things <laughs> led us to say, like, what can we do with our knowledge that is you know, more inbound focused? And, and how can we build a brand, build a company rather than building other people's companies for them? So the question and, you just asked is the question on so many listeners' minds right now. You effectively answered it. So what, what is some frameworks for thinking about how to transition out of client work that's misaligned? First of all, it's really difficult because if you are trying to build something else, you're going to have to acknowledge that the thing you currently have is going to go down a bit or it's, it's not going to be as successful. You're not going to be able to put as much energy in. For us, that all changed when we met a guy called Jock who runs a company called Digital Exits and introduced us this concept of, oh, we could sell our business. Uh, and we did end up selling the the agency not for very much money. I think it was like a hundred and something thousand dollars we got for it, which you know it's not nothing, but it, it kept us going for a couple of years certainly. But that kind of gave us this like hard exit that we could work towards. So it wasn't just this like kind of ongoing thing that was taking up our mind share. And then before we'd sold the business, we had already started Authority Hacker. And we already think okay, this is the next thing we want to want to start working on. We obviously had four years knowledge working on. I don't know, 400, 500 different client sites and different projects and from all sorts of industries. So that, that knowledge was super valuable in what we went on to do next with, the, with Authority Hacker. Uh, like we weren't just making this, this shit up. We actually really did know how to do it. And we had some good processes for how to do link building and content creation and keyword research and all this stuff. And then it was just really a case of, let's start building the kind of, content community around this. There was no product there in the, the early days. There was not even really any plan for that initially. It was like, let's just build the blog, uh, build the email list, because we knew that was valuable, and then get people to kind of interact. We had comments and we would you know, email people that would comment us, um, you know, build sort of connections on Skype, I think it was back then, um, oh, yeah. to, to sort of 
share our content. And we had this sort of, there was a website, inbound.org, which was kind of like a, it's like a Reddit for online marketing stuff. You could upvote things. So we would have all our friends upvote stuff. So we would go to the top of there and just little kind of hacky things that got us a bit more initial traction. And that was kind of what led us into to having a bit of an audience that we could eventually sell to. What I'm hearing is you had confidence and focus around this idea of authorityhacker.com, which is why a lot of people don't make the jump. So you had some money as a buffer, but what gave you that confidence to kind of go all in and be hacking all day long to build one thing rather than getting distracted on kind of cash snail trails, which I see a lot of people doing like cash grab, cash grab, cash grab. Instead, you're on inbound.org, like upvoting an article that you spent 20 hours writing. How did you have the confidence to focus? We wanted to move away from what we were doing before. So our entire mentality was like, how can we not have to work for clients? And we kind of structured our days around, well, we have to make this successful. I think part of that was selling the agency business. So yeah, we had that runway, but we knew if we didn't make this work, we're going to have to go back for work to working for clients. And we definitely don't want that. So it gave us this just like impetus to take those extra opportunities and make it work there, I would say. I think like some people, the, the burn the ships mentality doesn't work for everyone. For us, we, we kind of like thrive in that situation where we, we don't really have anything to go on and we have to kind of like make something from nothing. A lot of um, what drives these stories in my case is like when you see a parallel brand or a case study and you're like, oh, that's it. We can do that, but for this. Were there um, brands that inspired you guys? And like, what was the road to making meaningful income with Authority Hacker? And what was yeah, that product? Yeah, like 100%. So there was a guy, uh, Matthew Woodward. He, he still runs his, his site now. He started a few years before us and he was doing something similar, but more in the kind of gray hat side of SEO. So we basically wanted to do, be Matthew Woodward, but for white hat stuff. Because we had this crazy situation in our agency where we got like 55 unnatural link penalty notices for our clients in a week. And uh, it wasn't great. So after that, we were like, <laughs> let's not do that again. Uh, so we we're very much focused on the, on the white hat side of things. So you guys were like the clean cut SEO guys. in the nah, Cleanish, cleanish. Like it's, you can never be super squeaky clean when, when it comes to, comes to that stuff. But what was really helpful actually was people like Matthew were really sharing information about how successful they were, like income reports and, and things like that. And what we were talking earlier, that really crystallized in our mindset that, hey, this is possible. We just have to do this and follow through and it'll take a little bit of time. In terms of project trajectory, it was very much, we spent the first year making almost no money from it, a, a little bit in affiliate commissions here and there from the blog, but nothing substantial. And then Gail made a product called Double Your Leads, which was a few video modules showing how to implement opt-in pop-ups and optimize a thank you page and all that stuff in such a way that you could yeah, double the amount of emails you're getting on your list. And we sold that. And we, I think in the first week we made like $3,000 or something. And it was like, oh, okay, there's something here. And that was really the start of the course business, really. That's incredible. It must have felt amazing, especially because your last client didn't appreciate that knowledge. And now all of a sudden you're making 3000 bucks in one week and selling the same thing. What was, I guess, the craziest part for us was that this was just happening. We weren't having to do sales calls or sales emails or no one's asking us questions about it. They just, they just bought it and used it. This happened. You, you'd wake up in the morning, check your phone, like, oh, shit, I made a sale last night. That was like, blew my mind. You know? What made it possible for Authority Hacker to go from one of the many, many sites that was sharing tips about this stuff and selling a course or coaching or, or making enough money for someone to live to turning into the brand that it's become, which is a much more meaningful contribution to our industry. Why did you guys make it? Like, what was that step? Do you think it was the partnership at the core? Was it making significant financial gains that could staff up a team? Like, why do so many fail and you guys are here on the pod talking about the past decade? <laughs> 
Yeah, I sometimes look back and ask that, ask myself that question. Look, I don't know for sure if these this is the thing that made it work for us, but not for other people. There's two things that stick out though significantly. One is we we were quite quick to increase our revenue to the sort of seven figure level. We had this course, and then you know we had some initial success with that. Made like I can't remember, it was like ten or thirty thousand. One of those two numbers I've made. It was a long time ago. And then we we're like, okay, well, we need to make like a bigger course and we can build a community around it and do all this, these things. That was the start of Authority Hacker Pro. So we launched that and initially it was a membership. It was making $10,000 a month, something like that, which is good. And that was a point where, okay, you know, this business is sustaining us. But then I was reading a post by a guy called Brian Harris, who he runs a site, it used to be called Video Fruits. I forget what it, he's changed it, rebranded it now. Uh, he basically did product launches and for courses. And he had these two posts, which were just oh, the most amazing blog posts I've ever read in my life. It was like a step-by-step. Here's everything we did to before we launched our, our course. And then here's everything we did during our launch. So I literally took that and then did you know 80% of those things, tweaked a few things ourselves, did a little bit differently. And then we did a launch that made, I think it was like $80,000 in a week. And then that was the point where I was like, okay, well, we've got something real here. And then we just sort of iterated from, from there quite fast. And w- within a year, we were doing you know multiple multi-six-figure launches per year. And what that allowed us to do was very quickly start reinvesting in, in the business, in other sites, in testing, in the team, and, and, and kind of grow quite quickly there. And we still, to this day, produce, i say like 90% of the content for the courses ourselves. We obviously have video editors and people that help publish it now, but the actual filming is is still done by us at, at the core. And one mistake I see quite a few other people doing is when they get to a certain point, they then, they're like, well, I need to hire someone to film all the courses and do all the courses. And that can be a mistake sometimes if your audience is there kind of for what you teach, but also for you. And I think our business, it's very much the Mark and Gail show. And I think it's, it's probably something that's quite difficult to sell if we ever did want to do that because of that. But at the same time, that affords us pretty big advantages over companies trying to become this brand. What I hear you saying is it became a priority for you guys to capitalize the business, to build and drive a strong sales process where you could have reliable revenue coming in the door. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that, that's why businesses exist, right? To, to make money. It's easy to get distracted on the internet, though. <laughs> <laughs> Currently, we don't have a mission statement and a, a you know, clear definition of what it is we're, we're trying to do. That there's, we are starting to go through the traction process at the moment, so that, that stuff's starting to come out. But it's more, we want to make money doing this, but we didn't want to make money at all costs. You know, there's a lot of companies out there that will recommend one of these companies because they pay really high affiliate commissions. We're like, they're just not a good host. Like, like, here's the actual best one. And often it doesn't have an affiliate program or it doesn't pay nearly as well. And I would like to say it's because we're so nice people, but but actually, I mean, we are, but it's also about building that long-term brand and that long-term trust. And for us, it's much more important to have someone that they, they don't buy from us today or next year or the year after, but you know, in five years' time, they're like, "Wow, I've got so much value from these guys. I wanted oh, sign me up." And that I think also, in a way, thinking about it, that makes the sales process less salesy for us if we do that. So maybe there is some some kind of ulterior motive there. I'm not sure. Well, I'll use the A word in regards to you, authentic. I think that is a good business strategy. To it's like. Gail's doing the mad scientist stuff. It's an authentic exploration of something, of curiosity, of information, leadership, it's clarity, it's communication, it's correctable. I think you guys have a correctable brand, which, you know, I see people just kind of compromising with the truth often in order to make money now, but it costs them down the road, essentially. And I think that that's a really interesting thing to note about Authority Hacker is like, because you guys have this like authentic leadership that's correctable, you can continue to make these deposits in the trust bank and then you can have these enormously successful launches, like you said, down the road. 
and a big part of the reason why we do this is because I think both of us would have gotten into this industry at least five years earlier, were it not for the fact that in the in the mid two thousands, all of the people teaching this and had pictures of Ferraris on their sales pages, and it was it felt very dirty, like get rich quick, and I'm sure a lot of it was, but we. We saw once we got into the industry running the agency that there is real substance to SEO and it's, it's one of the highest ROI investments in the long term, at least, you can make in your marketing. But there is so much noise and snake oil out there that we wanted to... We we're okay with making less money if it meant we could be more genuine and be more real and get the message out to people who otherwise wouldn't have, have joined in. So it's like we're, we're kind of making the course that we would have wanted ourselves 15 years ago. Could we talk about the pros and cons? I'm assuming you and Gail have a 50-50% ownership in Authority Hacker. Yeah, that's right. So Ian and I's story is very similar where we met in a bar. (laughs) We liked each other and it was like really fun hanging out. We were both broke. We were drunk. And then we said, what if we were rich together? (laughs) And so then we did business stuff. And there seems to be like this really amazing thing about friends that have a slightly different temperaments or personalities that can contribute these vastly different things. And one plus one equals three. And that seems to really work, especially those first three years, that thousand days where you're pressing through being broke. It's like, we're broke together, you know? And it's like, these cigarettes are only 20 cents and whatever. But what I found, and, and we haven't talked a lot about on this podcast, is like the challenges and problems with 50-50 partnerships. Like if you Google it on the internet, Reddit's full of posts like, hey, you should like always have a tiebreaker because it doesn't, it's like kind of inefficient to have two people with an equal say in a large business. And Ian and I have really butted our heads against that inefficiency over the years where it's like, hey, who's in charge here? And the answer is exactly nobody is in charge. <laughs> Could you walk me through some of those dynamics in your relationship, some of the differences and what are the positives and negatives of that? Yeah, it's really interesting you you brought that up because when we first started the SEO agency, Gail and I were like, let's let's do this. And then there was this other guy who had a sort of similar agency and we were like, let's do this together with him. And so we kind of like merged it together and we ended up in this 50-25-25 situation. And to be honest, we got a bit out negotiated. I think he was a little bit older. I think he was a lawyer. So he knew a bit more about this stuff. Um, but it went great for the first six months. But then underlying tension that was there was like, well, if we're doing this work, but he's getting twice as much, like what's the incentive to do it here? And it just, it was weird. And it created all these like split incentives and it just, it didn't work. So since then, Gail and I were like, okay, let's do 50-50. We've always had this rule, like no outside projects as well. So like, I'm not going to go start another business. So, you know, that I own hundred percent of, so I'd be incentivized to work more there. And I think just that, just knowing that this is everything and we have to make this work has, as you know, driven us over the years to put everything into that. Now you're absolutely right about what they say on Reddit. You know, it, when it's 50, 50, no one's in charge, but I think that's okay. As long as the two people who own own 50-50 are capable of resolving conflicts and disagreements in a good way. So Gail and I are very logical people. And uh, I mean, of course, we get emotional from time to time. And we do have, you know, heated debates, as I like to call them. (laughs) But for the most part, if Gail has a point that's obvious, or if Gail has a point that's logically sound, or I do. Then the other person, I, I can't remember a time when the other person hasn't seen the light of what the other person had to say. Like we always give each other time to explain these things. I think one of the real benefits of being business owners together and going through that journey from like zero to hero is that you can operate without a filter. So I notice in larger companies or when you have kind of people coming in at different levels, everyone has a bit of a filter and they're kind of trying to operate as a person within that company. But Gail and I's conversations, when it's just the two of us, it's just completely unfiltered. Like what comes out of our mouths is what exactly what's in our brains. And that certainly caused some issues from time to time, but that 
is a really good thing to really get to the root of, of any problems quickly. And even though it might be uncomfortable, we always know where each other stands and that enables us to kind of fix anything that's broken. So I think that like dispute resolution process, it's not super well defined, but it just, it works. And I think that's a much better situation than a 51-49 split. That's really interesting. There's this book I'm reading right now. It's just so wonderful a book. It's called American Icon. And the CEO is always like, we've got to deal with reality here. We've got to deal with reality. And it's one way to interpret what you're saying is the promise of a marriage or a partnership is that you have someone that is aligned with telling you the truth. And it, it could be similar to like the marketing approach you guys are taking with your messaging and information, which is like in the short term, that could be less efficient. It would be more efficient if you could just be the dictator. But the dictator doesn't always get told the truth. Exactly. And then you surround yourself by yes men or yes people, and then <laughs> you don't actually know what's, what's going on. Certainly, there have been projects I've taken on working with other people and think, oh yeah, this is, this is great. This is great. And Gail's come and take a look at it. I'm like, what are you doing? This is sh Let's not do this. So like, oh, actually, yeah, you're right. So just... It's like having someone to, to like pull you out of that kind of thought loop. It's so, so helpful. You can kind of get that a little bit from time to time. I've noticed in in-person masterminds and sometimes at events as well. But certainly, you know, having a co-founder that we have a one hour call every Friday afternoon and we're pretty strict about sticking to that. It just helps keep you on the straight and narrow. I like that process. That simple one hour a week solves a lot of the problems that can come up in these relationships. Just making sure that there's not a third person there. Sometimes the third person will instantly enter in those politics where you have to politic a little bit because now there's three people where when there's two people, you can kind of just have that unfiltered thing. So you mentioned that it might be a little bit difficult to sell Authority Hacker. It doesn't sound like it's on your dashboard. And you guys have made... The 10 beers and cigarettes dream, like you've achieved it now. You've gotten there. You guys have made it in any meaningful way. That early laptop, let's travel dream has been achieved. How do you think about the next five years in that context of having gotten to so many important milestones in the internet journey? So when we started, we, had, we were basically broke. I mean, we didn't have really a penny to our names. And then we very quickly got to the stage where we were living in Budapest and you could do not anything you want, but you know, you could go to any restaurant you want, go in any bar you want, order whatever you want. And it was like, take a taxi anywhere, go out, buy whatever clothes you want, not an issue. And then once you have that lifestyle, there was certainly like a two, three year period where we were just like, we're comfortable here hanging out. And it was, it was more a subconscious thing. And we, we kind of like stopped pushing, I think a little bit and things flattened out for a while. And then we kind of started getting into personal finance and okay, well, we've made a little bit of money. What do we do with that? And how do we invest that? And then we just sort of like started really getting into our numbers and tracking things and, and looking at it. It almost became like a, a high score in a, a video game. Like how do we make this number go up? And we're pretty like down to earth people. Like I drive a used Volkswagen and you know, I don't really have massively expensive taste, but it just something about like making this number go up and like what that could potentially do in terms of long-term financial security for my family. And I did something that, I don't know, just that is what seems to be driving both of us to an extent right now to push things further. We've occasionally had conversations like, should we ever sell? Should we think of selling this? You know, it would be a massive transformation we'd need to do before it got into such a stage. But it always came back to the conclusion for us that like, well, this is a really good platform we have, a really good community, really good audience, really good business as well. We can spin off so many other cool products, services, potentially SaaS tools and other things like that as separate businesses by you know using this platform, which we've built for the last nine years to get those things going. So for us, that is kind of like quite exciting to say, what else can we do with this and how much further can we push things? And so it's, yeah, it's just, it has this kind of like momentum behind it. And then, you know, there's, as a team starts to get bigger, it's like, it becomes, sounds super like cheesy, but it sounds, it becomes like something more than just the two of you. And then that, that's it's like, almost like has a momentum of its own. That's beautiful. 
I love it. Mark Webster, thanks for taking your time to join us on the podcast. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.